0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about a University of Arizona project to measure climate change in the Southern Ocean. Go back 50 years in time with historian Jay Gallantine. And hear some of the lesser known stories surrounding the Apollo space program. And meet some of the spaceflight enthusiasts who gathered in Tucson for Space Fest. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It may be surprising to hear that the University of Arizona has a presence in the Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean Climate and Carbon Modeling Program, or SOCOM, is a $21 million collaboration with the National Science Foundation. It has taken my next guests all the way from the UA Department of Geosciences to the decks of research vessels sailing on often stormy waters where the water temperature can be as low as 28 degrees. They're part of a cutting-edge project to study changes in ocean chemistry and global temperature. Becky Biedling is a graduate student who has published papers based on this research, working closely with her advisor, associate professor Joellen Russell. You'll hear Russell sing Biedling's praises in a moment, but we'll start with Becky Biedling.
1: So my undergrad was actually in chemistry and biology, and I minored in math. And I got to my last year of my undergrad, and I always thought I was gonna go into something like chemical engineering. And I actually started thinking about it. I was like, okay, what you know, what am I really passionate about? And it's about understanding the earth and understanding how our climate works. So I was like, okay, well, I have a degree in chemistry and biology and math. I can definitely apply that to. Cl-
0: how fast are things changing in your field? Like, let's look at the six-year window since Becky came to the U of A how do you measure these six years as opposed to your career in this field before that
2: uh six years ago we did not routinely run earth system models which is not just a climate model but it's all of the carbon biogeochemistry of the ocean biology of the land trees and uh everything up into fish and the carbon in the atmosphere and in the ocean et cetera. we didn't have a carbon monitoring satellite oco2 did not exist uh we didn't have models that could handle the carbon we didn't have robot floats that could measure the carbon in the ocean our field is accelerating and we're trying to help push it because we know that the ocean is changing really quickly we're concerned about things like half of the great barrier reef that took a million years to grow half of it died in the last three years if you're not interested in a reef, might I might be able to interest you in Norfolk, our largest naval base. Um, projections of sea level rise uh, predict that we have roughly 20 years before that will be significantly underwater, unless we do extraordinary things this is what is coming having somebody like becky who's done stuff like teach sky school up here at the in the catalinas at mount lemon and she is a go-getter she's going to both make the science and communicate the science and you know what that says for oldies like me the future is in great hands we're going to be okay Cause these young people are coming. And when we drop in the traces after a long career and can't go any further, they will step right over us and up that hill.
0: When Joellen was mentioning some of the tools that you use to create these models, she mentioned robot floats. And I think this is a really interesting part of your research. It's something dramatic that our listeners might enjoy hearing about. So tell us a little bit about what kind of a tool the robot float is for you.
1: They don't necessarily look like floats. These kind of these big, you know, four-foot, five-foot-tall yellow cylindrical bodies, tubes essentially, I guess, uh, that we uh, drop into the ocean. And it's it's collecting data that allows us to understand the salinity of the ocean, the temperature of the ocean, which gives us the density structure. And also now with the, the new floats as part of the SOCOM project, it's allowing us to look at, for the first time, carbon pH, uh, different biogeochemical kind of tracers. My research and why I came to work with Joe Ellen is I kind of want to bridge the gap between modeling and observations. So floats allow us to observe our ocean along with ship-based measurements and other kind of measurements. And why I think that's critically important because I'm very passionate about using climate models to get a better understanding of what our future holds so we can be better prepared for it, you know, this century or next and we can use those observations that are collected from these floats to actually benchmark our climate model. So we can say, okay, you know, this climate model simulates these properties in this region. You know, let's compare that to how we actually observe it. And so we can get an idea of how well, you know, these climate models simulate this. And that drives us to understand mechanisms, first of all, uh, with respect to ocean dynamics. But it drives us to build you know, better models. And when you hear someone talking about what the future may hold, what the global temperature is, it's the result of those climate models. And those climate models are getting better and better and more accurate because we know more about our observed world, and we're making that comparison
0: about how many robot floats are part of the project that you are engaged in and how many of these floats maybe have you deployed yourself in this line of research and do you ever have to retrieve them from the ocean? How does that work in terms of getting the data back?
1: Two summers ago I was out on a cruise going from um,
0: and when you say cruise people are going to imagine a swimming pool and a wet bar.
1: Yeah no swimming pool, no wet bar <laughs> uh, I guess a, a research vessel <laughs> a big ship going from Sydney Australia to Pappiete Tahiti. Uh, I think I deployed about six of those uh, on on that cruise and that so we deploy these floats which means we send them over, we lower them over the side of a ship. And they have a bladder in them, which basically allows them to go up and down throughout the water column. And no, we never have to retrieve them because when they come to the surface, all the data that they collected is now pinged back to a satellite. It's ready essentially within hours. Someone can go in and look at the data from that particular float. And I think the battery is, I think they roughly last five to seven years.
2: Um, That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: How many are deployed globally to, to make up the there uh, project? There are
2: 3,000 floats out that are Argo floats that just do the physics, the temperature and salinity of the ocean. But our project is particular to the carbon. We're interested in climate, and there's two parts of climate that the ocean really plays a role. One is the heat uptake. The more heat that the ocean takes up, the less is here to heat us up. And boy, has it been hot in Tucson. We had a record temperature yesterday at 109, record for the day. Never hit before. It's a big deal. So how much heat directly, but also how much carbon does the ocean take up? Because one in four carbon molecules that comes out of your tailpipe when you burn your gasoline ends up in the ocean and about half of those end up around Antarctica in the Southern Ocean where she's been deploying floats. There's more mixing there than almost anywhere in the world and that's why most half of the carbon and two thirds to all of the heat, that uh, excess heat is going in there. So we spend a lot of time down there doing that work. But the, the big issue is there aren't enough ships to actually measure the changes that are going on because it's going too fast, over too big an area. The oceans are 72% of the Earth's surface. We can't measure it by ship. Post-Cold War, 1989, we basically have had fewer ship days almost every year because we're mothballing ships and we're not replacing them. So if oceanographers, like Becky and I want to make progress, we have to leave something behind that's going to do the work for us. So we pick robot floats. We're also using satellites, et cetera, but this is a critical part of expanding the observing system without costing us more money. It costs about a hundred grand for two days of ship time, which will get you six profiles at maximum six all the way down and all the way up you know gathering water and making measurements okay a robot flows will cost less than that hundred grand and we'll get you 250 profiles.
0: Becky share with us some of the conclusions that this research is leading you to draw.
1: The major thing is from the SOCOM project I mean we're finally getting a view of the biogeochemistry of the southern ocean and one of the big conclusions were we're seeing is, you know, how important this ocean is for the global CO2 concentration. So the flux is the exchange of heat and gas that occurs there is really kind of what is driving our global climate. And I think that's going to be one of the big takeaways from socom you know everyone's always talked about how important the Southern Ocean is and we know it from you know previous observations and we know it from climate modeling simulations but now we're actually we have a large number of observations and now, we're watching
2: it happen and we're
1: we're actually watching it happen we're we're seeing that the Southern Ocean is driving our climate and it's essentially giving us yeah you know a window into what the future holds if we can understand how our Southern ocean works now, And uh, that'll give us a better idea, you know, if our climate warms and our ocean changes, what does that mean for the future?
0: Becky, I'd like for you to see if you can provide us with a quick snapshot to end on of a time when all this information and research you're doing, all of this science and and your own experience kind of came together in a way that was memorable for you.
1: So this brings one uh, particular moment to mind. It was actually the last cruise that I was on. It was the last day of sampling, you know, so essentially, you know, your last work day. There's 48 hours maybe until we hit Tahiti. And I remember getting done for that day. My shift was done at noon cuz I worked midnight to noon, and I remember I just, you know, it's the first time where you're like, I I have nothing, you know. I my job, my job is essentially done. So I went out to the bow of the ship, the front of the ship. I'm just standing there, you know, looking out into the ocean, and I'm just like You know, I've been on this boat for 46 days. Prior to this, I had just been studying the ocean, you know, the simulated ocean. I'd been sitting in front of computers uh, looking at, you know, thousands of lines of code. You know, you can understand the ocean that way, but, you know, I never really understood the ocean until I spent, you know, 46 days at sea, waking up at midnight every night and, you know, going out there and just seeing kind of like the black of the abyss. And you're just kind of like this little dot just like rolling in this essentially huge monster. And it really brought together, you know, kind of the magnitude of what I'm doing I remember being so moved by it. I actually went inside and wrote this long poem. <laughs> and actually, I think Joellen has a copy of it. Basically, you know, I used to understand the ocean in, you know, lines of code and equations. That's how it spoke to me. But now the ocean has spoke to me for like 46 days and waves. Anyway, it was, it was honestly really powerful, and I'm looking forward to, you know, in the future, hopefully getting out there again and kind of, you know, having that feeling of everything coming full circle and the magnitude of what I'm working on.
0: My guests were oceanographers Becky Biedling and Professor Joellen Russell from the UA Department of Geosciences. SpaceFest is an annual Tucson celebration of the past and future of space exploration. Last weekend at SpaceFest 10, fans of all ages and space professionals shared their enthusiasm, interest, and art. One guest of honor was Jay Galentine, an award-winning author and storyteller who specializes in space history. At SpaceFest, Tony Perkins asked Galentine to share some rarely told stories about the era of the Apollo moon landing missions.
3: Out of all the subjects that you could write about, why was this one the one that, that you liked the most that you felt that had stories that needed to be told?
4: Oh boy, space is big, which is such a cliched thing to say. I've always been interested in space. I could try and make a joke and say that it's my dad's fault because he brought me a book on Apollo when I was about 10 or 11 years old. I think that was a, a genesis of it. I think also because it's, I, I never expect to go to space in my lifetime. I am too old for it. I, my eyes are not good enough to get on the ship and my stomach will, will never allow me to do it. I mean, I'm just not suited for space. I'm never going there. We have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. And to that extent, it's something that is, is so exotic. Something that exists, but I'll never, I'll never get to see or experience or whatever, that that made me want to learn more about it, and and once I was sort of across that threshold, there were all these stories out there that some of the bigger ones you knew about Apollo Eleven or whatever, but but there there continued to be more stories. It it just fascinated me because there was this element of the human determination because it's hard to get there and it's hard to make something survive once it's there, whether it be a human or a machine. And so I was fascinated by this this sort of human determination to get there and, and explore it and make a discovery despite the risk, despite the expense, despite the complexity, despite everything.
0: Tranquility Base
3: here. The Eagle has landed. Roger. We've been through about five or six weeks of uh, almost non-stop space coverage with the Apollo 11 50th anniversary. And uh, we thought that maybe there, all the stories had been told. But there are some stories that haven't been told yet about that part of time in, uh, in the space race, at the end of the space race.
4: Well, there's a lot that the Soviet Union was doing at the same time as Apollo. There was definitely a race to the moon, but before that, there was a race to send something to the moon. Russia had blasted a man-made moon into outer space. On every continent and in every land, the story of Sputnik 1 dominated the front pages. And before that, there was a race to get into lunar orbit. They had a lunar lander that was tested and working, they had a lunar suit that was tested and working, they were part way to the finish line, they had spacecraft that had gone out and circled the moon, not orbited that, but circled the moon and, and come back, but the one thing they didn't have was a moon rocket that was going to take that lander and that suit with the person inside it all the way out to the moon, so they were going to lose this race they had another little vehicle that was designed to uh, land machinery on the surface of the moon, uh, drill up a lunar sample and put it into a little craft that would then blast off from the moon's surface and come home. And only four days before Apollo 11 launched, uh, the Soviet Union launched a craft they called Luna 15.
3: One sure indication that the Russians have had trouble is that there's been no word whatsoever from Moscow on Luna 15 in the last three or four hours. They didn't say a whole lot about it.
4: Everyone knew that it was going to the moon, uh, but the Soviet military industrial complex was pretty muted on exactly what this thing uh, was going to
3: do. Luna 15 apparently plunged to the surface of the moon at such high speed it likely severely damaged itself.
4: How did the Russians feel after they had lost? For, for those who were working on the space program, I, I have to say I feel like the biggest blow was not so much that they had failed to put a human on the moon before the Americans. I think there, there was a lot of pride in what they had accomplished to that point. I, I think what what really bummed those folks out is that the the Soviet government just as a whole sort of decreed that there would be this, this erasure, this attempted erasure of the fact that they were even trying to put people on the moon in the first place. To have your boss come along and say, this never happened. We are going to act like the plan all along was to explore the moon with this machinery. The plan all along was to put rovers on the moon and to send little craft that would drill up samples and, and bring them home. And we're really going to focus on space stations. That's, that's really what we were trying to do. We weren't really trying to put people on the moon. I think that was an extremely bitter pill to you know, spend years of your life working on this thing that essentially your boss is going to try and deny ever happened. That, I think that was the worst hit right there. That was a real gut punch.
0: While Tony Perkins was talking with author Jay Galantine, I walked among the crowds in the main hall and the dealer's room at SpaceFest 10. One pair of fans was attracting a lot of attention because of the highly detailed eight-foot-tall replica rockets that they wore strapped to their backs. One was a classic NASA Saturn model. The other was based on the Falcon Heavy that was successfully launched in 2018 by the commercial space company SpaceX. In between photo ops with convention goers, I got this interview.
5: Hi, um, my name is Melissa. Uh, I'm on social media as Rocketellist.
0: And what is your interest in space travel?
5: I've always thought, you know, the stars, the cosmos were really cool. I really enjoy playing space video games. The more space video games I play, the more I got towards the real science and the real rocketry. So,
0: what kind of research did you do to create your payload for today?
5: The inspiration was from the launch on February 6th. Everybody was just in awe over this launch and I was like, how do I commemorate this? What can I do to commemorate this launch? So, slowly but surely my mind came to rocket backpack would be cool. So, I found a paper model, a one scale Falcon Heavy online that you could download and print So I built that. It took me about a month. The parts were very, very tiny. I based this rocket that I'm wearing off of that one 100 scale And when
0: you say you printed it, do you mean 3D print?
5: No, literally you print it on your copier printer, and you cut out all of the pieces, and you glue it together. Yeah,
0: which is actually a lot harder than 3D printing. Oh, it takes
5: a a huge amount of patience to do that. The folks who do the paper modeling, and they do it very well. Like I just envy their work.
0: How and much I, does this weigh, approximately?
5: I don't have an official measurement. I know I need to get one eventually. It is significantly heavy, <laughs> I've discovered. Um, after the exhilaration of wearing the costume wears off, then I get nice swollen shoulders.
0: Hi there, could you introduce yourself for us, please?
4: Hi, I'm Xavier Sanchez. And what brings you to Space Fest? Space Fest. Uh, Melissa and her amazing rocketeer ability to make Model rockets. <laughs> so, uh, tell us about the rocket that you are wearing on your back. I'm wearing the Saturn V right now for the 50th anniversary. And What kind of a reaction have you gotten from fans today? Um, this is my first time ever doing anything like this, so I was very surprised. Everyone's very happy, very like involved to see it on a smaller scale, but it's still huge. Just to get in through a door, you have to bend down. <laughs> and then the kids love it. Everyone wants to have a rocket, so. It's really
0: cool. Watch out for ceiling
4: fans,
3: though. Oh, yeah. Definitely ceiling fans. <laughs> I'm Vera. I'm coming from Marana. Um, I'm here with my family, uh, with my son and daughter. So uh, we are here for my son, especially, he's interested in space. Do you hope
0: that he might have a future in engineering or space science? Uh, yes. Uh, his dream goal is uh, when he grow up, he wants to become a scientist, so that's why we are here. Can you tell me your first name and how old
6: you are? I'm Prejean. I'm nine and a half years old. My birthday is almost here.
0: Congratulations.
6: I enjoy space science a lot. And I'm actually planning to work in NASA when I grow up.
0: If you think ahead 50 years from now, you'll be 59 years old. Yes. Can you imagine that? Yeah. You'll be older than your pop. Yeah. So so what do you think we'll be? Where, Where is humanity going to be in space in 50 years?
6: Well, I think we would be in Mars because NASA's already planning to do some send astronauts to Mars, and we may have buildings that reach the moon, or maybe be some humans, some advanced humans or robots may even be living on the moon. But I, I think a lot of missions and plans would be orbiting around Mars.
0: If someone said to you today, we can send you to Mars, but you've got to spend the next 20 years training and studying and working really hard to get there, what would you say?
6: Yes and I just really want to go there.
3: Terrific. My name's Ken Naif, and I'm an astrophotographer. And I live in Arizona, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I take my photographs from dark sites. So for instance, I go to Portal, Arizona, which is just on the New Mexico border east of Tucson.
0: When you get these images, and you're able to look at them
3: and see what your camera has captured, what emotions does that stir? That's an interesting question because actually, when you take a a single exposure of an object, uh, let's say a 15 minute or a 20 or 30 minute exposure, and you look at it in the desert on the computer screen, it's horrible. You need to take many, many exposures and average them out so that you get rid of random noise and you bring the object that you're shooting clearer and clearer in the image. It's then that I actually get excited about what I've shot. Um, So it's a delayed reaction, it's sort of extraordinary. Being under the beautiful dark skies and seeing the Milky Way in all its glory, uh, that is really exciting. So while I'm actually taking very long exposures and the Uh, instruments that I have, the telescopes and the computers are all controlling themselves. I wander around the other observers who are actually looking through telescopes and I admire the skies through their telescopes. One of the most interesting things that I saw was the space station going over followed by SpaceX and they were about to dock like that and to me that was... It's just the excitement of knowing that we're up there. Yeah. And this is why I come here to Space Fest. Everybody that comes here knows what my images are about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty exciting to be in this environment.
6: Uh, hello, I'm Amber Allen. This is my first year here, and the organizer found me online I've been doing space art for about a year now, and I just really wanted to experience uh, an event with a lot of people who have the same interests and see how it went.
0: What's your favorite medium?
6: I work with oil paints mainly.
0: Well, you're capturing a kind of very human aspect of space travel, I would say, in some of the astronaut illustrations that you have, and there's one that caught my eye when I first walked by. It's an, an astronaut's laundry hanging out to dry. but. There's a distinctly feminine touch at work there.
6: Uh, that was definitely the case. It came about from two different sources. First of all, I thought of the spacesuit hanging on a laundry line just as a humorous take on it. And I'd seen some pictures where uh, someone had hung up a spacesuit. But I also wanted to bring in the aspect of, say, feminine clothes and under things because of the history of Playtex which built the first soft spacesuits for the Apollo program. So the iconic white spacesuits were created by what was originally an underwear company, and it was just a sort of fascinating bit of history, and uh, I really wanted to do something to honor that.
0: Fifty years ago, we landed on the moon for the first time. Where do you think we might be in 50 years? Any guesses on what you would like to see happen?
6: Well. I know we're planning to go to the moon again soon, also with the first woman on the moon. That's I'm really looking forward to. I don't know if we're heading to Mars that soon, but I think we're definitely going to try to get some more outer space infrastructure and possibly a lot more commercial dealings in
0: oh, space. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Um, Hi, who are you? Brody, and I am 11 years old.
0: Why did you want to come to Space Fest today?
1: Well, I just think it's really cool to meet all the astronauts and all the cool space stuff that's here.
0: When you think about the history of space travel, where do you think we might be 50 years from now? Any ideas?
1: Um, I think we might be on Mars, most definitely on the moon, because you know there's a lot of advancements in spacecraft that are happening really fast and really soon. So I think we're going to have another mission to the moon, and I think we're going go to go there to stay
0: those were the voices of some of the many fans at the annual gathering Space Fest, held last weekend at the Star Pass Resort. There are photos on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original
3: programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.